After leading Britain to victory in World War II, Winston Churchill was immensely popular. He was the inspiration that helped the country not give up and defeat Germany. We will never forget his speech, never give up. His popularity stood at 83%. It seemed a foregone conclusion that Churchill would be voted back into office for another term. But he made a couple mistakes. For one, he didn't really campaign. He figured he didn't need to. Everybody loved him. And second, he didn't articulate a future for the next term. Shockingly, Winston, whose popularity was 83%, was voted out of office July 5th, 1945. The people chose another leader who talked about a rosier future. Churchill was devastated. He slipped into depression and engaged himself in solo activities like painting and bricklaying. Many people are depressed today. I've read this to you before. The National Alliance on Mental Illness hotline reports a 65% increase in crisis calls over the last seven months. It's still too early for the official CDC report next year, but many cities are reporting uh, increases in suicides between 15 and 100%. Most people don't leave notes as to the reason for their suicide, but we can only surmise economic dis, uh, stress, they lost their job or their hours have been cut, working from home in social isolation. Working from home is not a problem. Most people love that. It's not seeing anybody. Anxiety over COVID, people are afraid. Drug and alcohol abuse and being cut off from religious services. We understand why some people are depressed. We have a pandemic. In order to slow that down, we executed an economic shutdown. Uh, that has hurt well over 50% of the people in this church. We have social unrest and all during an election year. Whether you're a teenager or in your 90s, divorced or married, a parent or a child, a follower of Christ or not, you can feel the stress in our country. In this series, we're trying to address how do we navigate this uncertainty. For help, we're turning to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah also experienced times of deep depression. He was not afraid to vent his frustrations to God. In fact, if you're a complainer, you tend to whine when things aren't going well. Jeremiah might give you some new hints on things you can say when you're depressed. Alas, my mother, that you gave me birth, a man with whom the whole land strives and contends. I have neither lent nor borrowed, yet everyone curses me. He's saying this to God. They said, come, let's make plans against Jeremiah. These are mostly the leaders in the country. So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. 
when the priest Pasher, son of Immer, the chief officer in the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. He was prophesying that the people would be taken into captivity in Babylon. He had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in stocks and at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. O Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. When you asked me to be a prophet, you didn't tell me it was going to go like this. This is terrible. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. And the last one is kind of his classic of all cries to God. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. Like Churchill, Jeremiah was depressed at times. Like Churchill and Jeremiah, maybe all the things this country is going through, maybe some personal things you're dealing with, has worn you out and has you feeling depressed. How do we navigate our uncertain times? How do we lead other people through this turbulence? You say, but I'm not a leader. Well, if you boil leadership down, it really is influence. And I'm willing to bet you influence someone. Maybe your mate, a son or daughter, a sibling, employees, maybe one employee, a friend, students in your class, players on your team, or a neighbor. If you're talking to someone who's really stressed, possibly depressed, and you have only a few minutes, what would you tell them to help them navigate these turbulent times? I think you would want to tell them at least four things. First, your life has a purpose. The fact that we have a purpose is so important that God announces it in the first chapter in the Bible. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We're told that we are created with a purpose because we're made in the image of God. God has a purpose, and he has a purpose for you. Your life matters. Life is not a bewildering, chaotic mess. It's a struggle, but it's a struggle guided by a high meaning. You were designed to use your mind and natural gifts to cultivate those assets towards fulfillment of a higher end. We care what you do. Your descendants who have died before you care what you do. God cares what you do. When Jeremiah was depressed, God told him that he had a purpose. Surely I will deliver you for a good purpose. God says, don't give up, Jeremiah. I have a purpose for you. Then he reminds him 
that his purpose is to warn the people of Judah that if they don't stop worshiping false gods and turn back to God, they're going to be taken into captivity in Babylon. Let them go. And if they ask you, where shall we go? Tell them, this is what the Lord says. This is in the final days as people are being carted off to Babylon. Those destined for death, to death. So some of the people died. Those for the sword, to the sword. Some were killed in battle, defending Jerusalem. Those for starvation, to starvation. When the Babylonians surrounded Jerusalem, some people starved. Those for captivity, to captivity. So some were taken, many were taken into captivity. I will send four kinds of destroyers against them, declares the Lord. The sword to kill, and the dogs to drag away, and the birds and the wild animals to devour and destroy. I will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, Manasseh was the worst king in the history of Israel. He led for 55 years, led the people into idolatry and all kinds of terrible practices. Son of Hezekiah, Hezekiah was a good king, so it's a surprise. Our faith only goes from one generation to the next. We can lose it in one generation. Son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Who will have pity on you, Jerusalem? Who will mourn for you? Who will stop to ask how you are? You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep on backsliding, so I will reach out and destroy you. Jeremiah's purpose is not to scare the people, but to warn them. His purpose is to invite people back to God. That's his real message. Our purpose is not to frighten people, but to tell them there is a God who loves you so much. He sent his son to die for you in your sins. Don't give up. Come to Christ. The second thing I think you want to tell people to help them get through these turbulent times is you can do it. Forge forth and conquer, build, cultivate. You were given the ability to choose your path in life. You were born into the freest civilization in the history of the world. Make the most of it. You are not a victim. In a free society, you are responsible for your actions. Your successes are your accomplishments. Your failures are purely your own. Look to your own house before blaming the society that bore you. Don't give up. You can do it. Jeremiah was downcast. He had served Judah for several decades, but people yelled at him on the streets, laughed at him in the synagogue, ridiculed him in the newspapers, and derided him on social media. They scoffed at the idea that God's people would be punished by God and taken to Babylon. But Jeremiah did not give up. Here's an example where Jeremiah showed the I can do it attitude. In chapter 36, if you want to turn to it, God tells Jeremiah to write his word on a scroll. So Jeremiah dictates it to Baruch, his scribe, and then Baruch takes it up to the 
to the temple to, uh, to read it on a special holy day. And the people that are there, particularly the, the, the leaders, the cabinet members, say, we have got to take this to Jehoiakim, the king. Then something very strange happens. After hearing a few lines, uh, Jehoiakim asks for the scroll, and they hand it to him, and he clips off the part that has been read, and he throws it in the fire. Then he hands it back. They read some more. Then he asks for it, and he clips the next part red, and he tosses it into the fire. This keeps going on. Jeremiah's thinking, I can't believe it. I go to all this trouble to write this, and I finally get published. And then the king arrogantly destroys it. But Jeremiah has the last word. God tells him, write it again, and then add some more words. And then Jeremiah reads these words to the king. You burned that scroll and said, why did you write on it that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and wipe from it both man and beast? Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. I will punish him and his children. Jeremiah is thrown in prison for this. There's not a dull moment in this book. Jeremiah could have felt sorry for himself. Felt like the victim, but he didn't. He believed that with God's help, he could do it. One of the reasons Jeremiah was able to be a faithful prophet for, for 45 years, even though the people didn't listen to him and the kings were cruel to him, was because he was honest with God. He told God his frustrations. In chapter 12, Jeremiah gives God some advice about what he should do with all these people that are rejecting him. The wicked people and the wicked uh, Babylonians. Jeremiah is not one to hold back from giving God advice. Yet you know me, O Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to the butchered, to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. That's his advice. God, these people that reject me and are, are wicked, have them taken like sheep to the slaughter. Jeremiah is able to stay sane because he vents his frustrations to God. He turns his complaints into prayers. Jeremiah does not complain publicly. He's not known as a whiner. The only person he complains to is God. Some of the best lines in Jeremiah are his laments to God when he pours out his feelings to God. In public, he's faithful to God. He keeps his attitude in check. In the privacy of his own home, he takes off his public face and pours out his doubts to God. He gives God some more advice in chapter 18. Listen to me, O Lord, hear what my accusers are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they have dug a pit for me. Remember that I stood before you and spoke in their behalf to turn your wrath away from them. So give their children over to famine. Hand them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives be made childless and widows. Let their men be put to death 
their young men slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring invaders against them, for they have dug a pit to capture me and have hidden snares for my feet. But you know, O Lord, all their plots to kill me. They're constantly trying to get rid of Jeremiah. Do not forgive their crimes or blot out their sins from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. God invites us to tell him our feelings. He wants us to be honest with him. Jeremiah's not wrong here. When he's in public, he does what God asks him to do, no questions asked. But when he's alone with God, he lets God know everything he's feeling. Turning our frustrations into prayers is good practice. In fact, Jeremiah's honesty is what keeps him sane. It's what enables him to keep serving God for 45 years. You can do it. Like Jeremiah, don't give up. Don't play the victim in public. Save that for in private before God. He'll give you the strength to keep going. The third thing I think you want to tell people to help them get through these turbulent times is your civilization is unique. God reminded the people of Judah that their country was unique. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. He's talking about through the Sinai. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty. So if people opposed Israel, God defended them, and disaster overtook them. What fault did your ancestors find in me? Talking about Manasseh and others, that they strayed so far from me. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt? They forgot what a unique civilization they were. When God establishes a relationship with the people of Israel, he said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. All people on earth have been blessed through the people of Israel. And now, people of Christian faith. People of Israel had a unique civilization. Jeremiah asked them, why are you throwing it all away? Our nation has also been unique in human history. Most human beings through history have lived in poverty and squalor, at serious risk of disease and death. Most human beings have experienced more pain in their, few, in their early years than you will likely face your entire lifetime. Most human beings have lived, in, lived under the control of others, suffered tyranny and oppression. The freedom you enjoy, the morals in which you believe are products of a unique civilization, the civilization of Moses and Jesus, Jefferson and Lincoln, Franklin and Adams, Shakespeare and Einstein. You did not create your freedoms or your definition of virtue. 
nor did they arise in a vacuum. Learn your history. Most major universities stopped teaching the history of Western civilization in 2010. Our college graduates are graduating without knowing the history of Western civilization or the history of the U.S. Learn your history. Be grateful for your roots. Then defend those roots, even as you work to try to make this a more perfect union. America is the greatest force for good in world history. That statement is not meant to ignore the myriad evils in which our nation has participated. Our treatment of the American Indians was wrong. That we treated 388,000 Africans who landed on our shores as subhuman slaves was deplorable. Abraham Lincoln admitted that our Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, cannot be completely performed until slavery ended in the United States. We have made a lot of mistakes, but Western civilization has freed more people than any other by a long shot. It has reduced poverty, conquered disease, minimized war. Western civilization is responsible for the economic betterment of the global population and for the rise in human rights and democracy. But if we take our country for granted and do not cling to our founding ideals, our country will cease to be unique. When we take for granted our faith and our country, that's what I call cheap grace. In 1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about cheap grace in the cost of discipleship. Cheap grace, where is it? Is the deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting today for costly grace. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Are thrown away at cut rate prices. He's quoting Jeremiah. The people said, hey, God's not going to punish us. This is the temple of the Lord. We're God's people. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and of course it has. This is a truth. Now notice, Bonhoeffer's working with a truth that has been turned into a half-truth. An example of this is marriage today. People say, God wants people in marriage to be in love and to be happy. I'm not in love and I'm not happy. Therefore, I should get a divorce. This is a bad conclusion drawn from a half-truth. Bonhoeffer goes on. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. There's the half-truth. We can have grace for nothing. No cost. Now Bonhoeffer explains what cheap grace is. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine. An intellectual assent to the forgiveness of sins is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. In other words, all you have to say is are the right words. This is the temple of the Lord. 
All your sins are forgiven. And if you say the right words, you're saved. If you say the right words, then you're forgiven. He continues, In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less a real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts to a denial of the living Word of God. In fact, a denial of the incarnation of the Word of God. This is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner. This is one of Bonhoeffer's great lines. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. That's the judgment Bonhoeffer has on the church. And that's what Jeremiah warns the people of Judah. We can live by cheap grace with Christ by assuming that we can have forgiveness without ever needing to show repentance. We can live by cheap grace in our country by not valuing the people who sacrifice their lives so that we could have freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom to work. We can recognize wrongs done in our country in the past and confess things that we still do wrong, but it does not require that we overlook the unique ways our country has been used for good by God in this world. Your life has a purpose. You can do it. Your civilization is unique. The fourth thing I think you'd want to tell someone who's depressed and just stressed out about the turbulence in our country is put your trust in God through Christ. I've made this point in one way or another every message in this series. Have you ever noticed uh, shopping carts in, in large shopping stores uh, made specifically for moms and dads. They have a little steering wheel inside and the toddler climbs in and steering like crazy, usually toward the potato chips or the candy aisle. The little kid thinks that, uh, you know, he's driving the cart. But in reality, the real person driving the cart is the parent. This is what we remind people. God is in charge in this world. Solomon writes, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels. He can direct which way the channel goes toward all who please him. Solomon tells us that God directs leaders in this world. He puts them in power and he removes them from power. God told Jeremiah that he could trust him. Jeremiah struggled with the kings and the priests that rejected him and ridiculed his message. He said, God, this is terrible. I don't know if I can do this any longer. God responded, I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you to rescue and save you, declares the Lord Think of God saying this to you today. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and deliver you from the grasp of the cruel. 
Notice what God promises and what he doesn't promise to Jeremiah. He doesn't promise to remove Jeremiah's enemies. He doesn't promise to take uh, away the pressure. He promises that he will not be overcome, for God will be with him. He says, Jeremiah, you will continue in the jungle of the Jordan, and so will I. I'll be with you. Put your trust in me. I'm all you need to get through these times. If you only have a few minutes to tell someone who's deeply depressed or stressed out about our times, I think you should tell them four things. Your life has a purpose. Life is not a chaotic mess. You have a purpose. There's a purpose to this world. You can do it. You're not a victim. You can chart your path. We have so many freedoms, and you can do it. Your civilization is unique. It's certainly not perfect. We've made a lot of mistakes, but we've had a unique contribution for the betterment of the world. And put your trust in God through Christ. God is sovereign, so you can trust Him in the midst of what we're going through. If you've never done so, you can commit your life to Christ right now as we pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the message you gave to the people of Judah through Jeremiah. Jeremiah faced a lot of pressure, a lot of ridicule. It had to be tough, but for 45 years he kept going. And you used him to, to, to speak your word. And we take his message to help us today. We have a purpose. We can do it. Our civilization has good to it, and it's unique. And we put our trust in you, that you are God. You are sovereign. You're in control. Why don't you tell God that right now, if you would, that you believe in the midst of whatever you may be going through personally or what you see our country going through, that God is in control, and you're going to trust him. And not just spend your time uh, stressed and maybe even depressed. You're not going to feel sorry for yourself, but you can do it. You tell him that. You pray. If you've never given your life to Christ, invite him into your life right now. Thank you, Lord, that we can believe that you are sovereign, you are in control. And so we're going to stop being all, you know, biting our nails, but put our trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray.